Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. Do I have new podcast theme music? No, no I don't. But what I do have is Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23 in A Major, performed by today's guest, Ben Kim. Ben has played them all. The Concertgebouw, the Kennedy Center, Carnegie Hall. But today, today, my friends, he's mine, all mine. <laughs> and I'm eager, honored really, to share him with you. Now, much has been said about my distinguished guest. His resume of awards and accolades is breathtaking. He's earned the praise of distinguished juries and discerning media outlets alike. The Süddeutsche Zeitung praises Ben Kim's performances as, quote, practically euphoric and filled with vitality. And I'll tell you, as someone who's been to a few Ben Kim concerts, I can attest, there's a hum, there's a verve to Ben Kim. Our local paper, the Berliner Morgenpost, declared that, quote, Ben Kim belongs to that small group whose playing extends beyond mere brilliant keyboard magic and pleasing, beautiful sound. More so, Kim is a narrator who knows how to captivate his audience from first to last note. And you, my friends, will surely find him captivating. Now, in full disclosure, I should confess that I've been captivated by Ben Kim for some time now, both as a fanboy and as a friend. You see, Ben Kim was the first roommate my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I had when we moved to Berlin some 15 years ago. We had an extra room, so we posted an ads on Craigslist. Yup, Craigslist. The running joke between Ben and I is that I posted an ad that said, middle-aged Semite seeks young Asian. But the truth, the truth is that Megan and I adored him immediately, as most people do, as you soon will. And we three became close friends, and he stayed with us for a couple years, often out on the road performing, right? The perfect roommate, the one who's often not there. But we loved it when he was there. And in any case, after a couple of years, he moved down the road a ways. But Ben and I always make time for each other. Uh, fun fact, fun fact, uh, he was actually one of the first friends to hold our newborn daughter in 2013. Yo, we got a hundred wacky stories, uh, none of which I'm particularly keen to share here. But I will say this. Ben Kim means a lot to me. It's been an unmitigated joy to watch his career flourish. And I've been really lucky that he's been supportive of all my projects. You know, for example, he's always been game to perform at the annual benefit concerts I put on at my high school. But even though he's always been so supportive, I was kind of reticent to invite him on the podcast. You know, if you've been listening this season, you've probably learned that I got a lot of wicked, talented friends. And I'm committed to being extra cautious to not exploit those friendships. But hey, I asked, and gracious and kind as he is, we set a date to record our discussion in the piano salon of For a Living podcast patron Lori Hofer. 
And so, my friends, you'll have the opportunity to hear Ben Kim at the Hofer Family Piano walking us through his practice live in session right here. So you can look forward to that. Now, of course, you don't need a piano salon to become a patron of this here podcast. But if you support the mission of For a Living, if you dig the program, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to patreon.com slash for living. You'll find the link in the show notes. It'll be my pleasure to reward you for your support of this project. Oh, and hey, we got another new patron. It puts a smile on my face to thank Frederica W. from Berlin, Germany, for her support of the podcast. Thank you, Frederica, for the kind note. Not going to lie, you brought a little happy tear to my eye. I'm humbled by your kind words and for your support of the podcast. And what you wrote about the problematics of public discourse with working artists eh, really resonates with me. And I think, I think there are a couple passages in this conversation with Ben Kim that speak to some of your hopes, or so I hope. Ben Kim and I discussed the joys and the challenges of practice and performance. We explore both the technical and the spiritual dimensions of his work. And we connect over carrying the weight of history, his history and the history of the titans on whose shoulders he stands. Listen, Ben Kim brings to this conversation what he brings to his performances. Charisma and modesty, boldness and sweetness, strength and vulnerability. So please do mind these counterpoints as you join me in conversation with Ben Kim. Ben Kim, welcome to For a Living. It is such a joy to be here with you. How do you describe what you do? Well, I would say I get paid to play mostly dead people's music <laughs> on the piano. That would be the shortest answer to your question. So I've had the good fortune of hearing you play mostly dead people's music and <laughs> Our listening audience will have a chance to hear you do the same. If you would be so kind, can you kind of walk us along your path? How long have you been playing mostly dead people's music? Give me the Genesis story. Well, there isn't much to it. I mean, I come from a family of immigrants. They, uh, they came from South Korea, and I was born and raised in the U.S. And I think it was mostly... You know, I had working parents at the time. They needed me to keep myself occupied. My mother had somehow the idea to get me a, a little Casio keyboard. I don't know if you remember the ones from the 80s, the little ones you can fit into a backpack with cartridges. Yes, yes. And 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 you can change them out to play different kinds of songs. I kind of remember one being, I left my heart in San Francisco. I, <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was, uh, and, and, and I think that I'd, I'd kind of play on the keyboard while I was waiting for the bus to school, and I think um, a classmate's parent had observed that I kind of, at some point, memorized all of the songs, um, and eventually came to my mother and, and said, oh, maybe he's kind of into that, and, and you should maybe, you know, look into it a little. So I think she signed me up for piano lessons, and actually my mom 
just recalled a story to me that I have absolutely no memory of. She said that she she didn't know what to do, so she just called the university in Portland <laughs> uh-huh. and was like connected to the 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 dean of music or something. She said, "Oh, so I have a child. He's five, and maybe he could study with one of your professors." <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And and they were like, uh, "So we don't do that, <laughs> um, but we can connect you to someone that might." And um, I w- was yeah introduced to a local piano teacher, um, the same teacher I had from age five to eighteen actually, um, and she apparently tested me. She she had me you know try out different tones and intervals and you know I knew nothing about the piano other than you know I left my heart in San Francisco um, <laughs> but she quickly realized I had perfect pitch um, she, she she noticed that I could locate all the intervals on the piano without um, needing to you know I couldn't read music at the time this is a story recalled by my mother so I, I don't remember this and quickly my piano teacher before she became my teacher she said well oh, you have a you have a problem to my mother, <laughs> and uh, and and um, essentially, um, I think she only had kind of older students, but she she took me on, and and I quickly got to learn the world of classical music from an early age um, in Portland. I didn't have you know real professional pre college training, but it was very clear to me from an early age that I was very much connected to, you know. I think first it was Chopin and Mozart and 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 yeah, dead people's music, as I said. Yeah. Um, and I and I the memories I do have from an early age, you know, being seven years old, six years old, was once I learned how to read notes. I remember discovering new music, like maybe a Chopin nocturne, and I remember being moved to tears as a as a young child. Huh. So that's kind of yeah. Those I think that's kind of what brought me to classical music and to the composers whom I love today. And um, Can I ask a quick question yeah, about sure. that? While I realize that the mystic chords of memory aren't always accurate, <laughs> can you give me a sense of what it was about Chopin that really moved you as a 7, 8, 10-year-old young boy in Portland? You know, I really I can't really explain it, actually. I mean... I just remember it somehow touching my core and it feeling like memories I haven't yet had, perhaps. <laughs> really? That's an interesting way to frame it. I mean, I think that it, it really it felt a little bit like, oh, I have an access to something that I wouldn't otherwise have had. But it, it sounds like from what you're saying, it almost gave you like a window into yourself. But but I mean, what what do I have? And what what does a seven year old have? I mean, I, what does an eight year old have? Like it, it gave me a window, I think, into them. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. So you were, I don't know if you like using the word, but I'll use it. Somehow gifted from an early age, it seemed like you had an aptitude. Yeah, I don't think I was a, like a prodigy of any kind necessarily, I, but I, I, I had an aptitude, yes. And you were in high school and you were getting increasingly serious about it? There was a moment, I think I was 12 and I had played for a conductor and he, he kind of urged my parents, you know, you have someone here that needs, you know, to go to New York or to get some professional training and you need to like kind of go to the next stage. And I remember discussing that with my parents, you know, as a middle schooler, 
Um, and I was pretty adamant for whatever reason that I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to stay in public school. I don't know, just be with my friends. I, I enjoyed going to school as well. And I enjoyed learning not only music, but many other things. So, so I, I think generally I was a very curious um, person. You know, I had the opportunity, I think from 12, I started going to more serious music festivals or summer camps, I guess. I went to Aspen Music Festival for five weeks, nine weeks at a time in summer um, and really got my first exposure to like other really, really talented young musicians um, and, and, and learn about what they do. And, and for some reason that that was enough for me at the time and staying in Portland I don't know it gave me other advantages I might not have gotten the kind of rigorous training that most people in my field uh, might have had and it's kind of necessary to have it's really like playing tennis or ice skating you just like someone has to decide for you before you decide yourself that this is going to be your path for you to get the proper training you need to be successful later on um but I came to it very naturally, and with that came other advantages. Being in Portland then, you know, not being in the most competitive environment also allowed me to get a lot more exposure, to play with orchestras, to be solace with orchestras, to play concerts, really kind of lay groundwork for my future in another way. You know, rather than just learning how to play the piano, I got to have the chance to be on stage more often and yeah, it was, it was, it wasn't the most, it was, I wouldn't say it was an exceptional path, but it was, it was a little atypical, I'd, I'd say for people in my field. So despite this somewhat atypical path, you ended up studying music at university, right? Can you talk right. just briefly about that experience? Well, it was actually a very special kind of, um, uh, yeah, it was almost as if it was kind of laid out for me a bit, like my the, like my fate almost, because um, when I was a junior, senior in high school, I had actually decided not to go to music university. I'd spent every summer studying music very seriously and through the year as well, playing concertos and concerts, you know, with you know, orchestras in the area and things like that. And it was kind of the most serious hobby that I had, but ultimately I had decided that I'd wanted to go to a regular university. I had applied for five or six non-music school universities and thought of maybe majoring in math or literature. I don't know. I just kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. But I did apply for Juilliard. That was the one kind of exception. And then my senior year of high school, it was already after like all the college applications were, were due, there was a pianist that came to Portland to give a concert and a series of master classes. Someone who I really looked up to actually since I was really, really young because he was always at Aspen um, and he is one of the most legendary American pianists of really the 20th century, I think, or the at least the second half of the 20th century, a um, man by the name of Leon Fleischer. I mean, he came to Portland to give a concert and then I played in his... I think I even jumped in for someone. I didn't think I was supposed to play in it, but I played for him in a public masterclass. And afterward, he invited me to um, join his studio. Uh, he invited me to audition for him. And that kind of very quickly changed my 
you know, my, 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 I was like, oh, okay. Well, that, that was not expected. He teaches at Peabody, which is a part of the Johns Hopkins University, Peabody Conservatory. And so I sent a late application for Peabody. And then I think I did my audition. It's so long ago. I don't really remember, but I, th- I did my audition at Peabody and at Juilliard kind of back to back. But um, before I got the official acceptance letter from Peabody, you know, I got a phone call from his you know, secretary. I remember I was in a Juilliard dormitory right after my Juilliard audition and uh, I was staying with a friend or something and, and his assistant telling me that, that I had been accepted into his class. And they, they were trying to pluck you from Juilliard, weren't they? They wanted to make sure. I mean, that, <laughs> well, that I must know. be the case. Did you ever think about it that way? Like the fact that they chose to call you at Juilliard? No, I, they had no idea that I was at Juilliard. But I, like, just it was, oh, it I was just on have your this, cell phone. Yeah, I just have this memory. Of, you had cell phones back then. It wasn't that long ago, man. What? <laughs> <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> so, but uh, but I remember being. Um, I remember just being in the dormitory, getting the phone call, say, and then I was like kind of jumping up and down that I had gotten into his class, and then. And then I kind of remember like just totally forgetting about any of the other universities I had applied to. And then suddenly that was like my new path. Yeah. Right then there. I think it was like in February in like uh, of my senior year of high school. And even then, like, like after the first, even through my first year at Peabody, it took me that long to like age 18, 19 to really come to the place where I could say to myself, this is what I want to do. And this is quite unusual because you usually you have to either make that decision much earlier or, or somebody makes that decision for you, as I was saying before. I know that Leon Fleischer passed away somewhat recently and I want to bid you my condolences. I know he meant a lot to you and I know that he means a lot to a lot of people. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about that experience studying with him I mean, you know, he was kind of the torchbearer from from Beethoven to 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 Czerny to to Liszt to like you know like before recordings there were teachers and you you learned you know the language of music and and language of these composers uh, that were passed on from generation to generation and he was kind of the ultimate torchbearer from you know kind of a direct lineage from Beethoven um, and. He, of course, impacted, you know, as a, as a pedagogue um, and performer, he, um, which is kind of unusual for, you know, many pianists either go one route or the other, and he was both. Um, he impacted hundreds of, uh, of students f- over, uh, I don't know, six, seven decades. And, and so it was very moving to see so many of his students last year um, come together and commemorate his death and his, his legacy. He was, you know kind of like a grandfather to me a bit. Um, I was the youngest student when I joined his class, and I think he was at an age when he, um, you know, he, he, he was not able to use his right hand for a number of decades, actually, and through a new treatment of Botox injections in his arm, actually, it was quite novel at the time, um, it, he was able to play with both hands again and therefore able to perform quite a bit when I was studying with him and... To see kind of all of that happen, uh, you got to see his armor come back to life. That must have been thrilling for him, and it was. I mean, I think it was thrilling and frustrating yeah. because for for him, because you know, like the things that were working only gave a glimpse of you know the things that could be better, and also and highlighted all the things that weren't working. So I think that that was. Um, 
I know that it was a painful thing for him um, not to be able to play the way he could. But I will never forget, the students call them Fleischerisms, because he, he had pillars of, 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 or even commandments, kind of, uh, <laughs> that, of, of, of what we, you know, when he said something, it, it felt like there couldn't be anything that would be more true, you know, and, 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 and to the point, and, and that was his, his gift. Can we honor him by sharing one or two Fleischerisms here on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't know if this, if this would be kind of applicable in a non-musical setting, but he would often say, be as late as possible without being too late. <laughs> well, having been friends with you for some years, I, you take that <laughs> advice very literally and seriously. <laughs> I mean, I think he was referring more to uh, time and rhythm and the propulsion of time and rhythm, um, uh, how, 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 how time moves. Uh, uh -huh. through. But, but yeah, I, I guess one could take it also in a more literal sense. <laughs> you were even late for this thing. <laughs> well, you gave me a window. I did. I did. I came at the, at the end of that window, I guess. You did. You did. <laughs> Give me one more Fleischerism. He said something very beautiful, which actually it it supported and went against kind of everything he 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 would say. But something I always think about is that he often said the opposite of everything I say is equally true. He brought a humility to his practice. Uh, one could say, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that. It's easy to put him on a pedestal, and, and and we do, and he deserves it, of course. But I, I think he was also a person, and he was also... Um, his search for finding the truth in music was... And, and, and the way to kind of communicate that to other people, that was really um, a gift few, very few people have had and have. Hmm. So Leon Fleischer, unfortunately, is no longer with us. His legacy, as you've alluded to, is profound and far-reaching. It's been years since you were his student. What's his lasting legacy on your practice today? It's interesting because when you study with someone, I don't know, like him, um, I think a lot of his students have gone through similar kind of phases first you're kind of in awe of someone like you know i think a lot of people have mentors or or teachers someone they look up to someone who you think this is the way there can't be another way um and as you get to know them and as you work with them and you 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 try to discover kind of your own voice and through that comes a certain i think a certain pushback as well like i think when someone's that is such a force as he was um, enters your life. You also, there also comes a moment when you're like, I need to forget this right, <laughs> a little right. bit, you know, like I need to, I need to try to unlearn a little bit of this so that I can really try to dig deep into what it is that I'm, I, I'm looking for myself. Um, and not all of these prescriptions that he made, like upon going through that, you know, he kind of, 
you know, leaves this mark on you um, that's always there uh, that you always have to deal with. And yeah, sometimes I'm like, what if I want to come early? Maybe I'll just come in a little early. Why not? And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think that that's the impact that he's made on everyone. He, everyone he's taught, um, is his presence is always there, especially after he died last summer. Um, and I heard it from other students of, of his as well. I just, you just suddenly, suddenly I was playing, you know, Brahms or, or Beethoven and I could kind of hear him telling me what he would say you know whether i was doing it or not that's another thing but but uh but his presence was very much there and it it, it, to some degree it always is um and i think that i would say the same about all the all the all the teachers i've had in my life that left um a similar impression um and and yeah it's helped shape me yeah can i ask you do you have any ambition whatsoever to occupy that space, which is to say to become like one of those master teachers? Like, do you have a vision of yourself, say, in your 50s or 60s, being a mentor and a teacher and coach for the most sophisticated young pianists? I mean, I think that I... I am interested in talking about music and how to create, recreate, bring to life something and all of the aspects that involve doing that, you know, whether technical or inspirational or, or, or ideological or whatever, you know, you have to be a certain kind of person to play piano for your whole life. There are people who, 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 who've played the piano and performed on stage their whole careers. It takes a certain... Uh, nerve and steel and also a willingness to just be alone you know and do your thing in your own world and it's not easy for for me I mean I think that um, it's it's quite a lonely sport so I think that to be able to talk and exchange is it can be extremely gratifying so I, I mean I'd say yes I mean I'd love to I'd love to be able to do that one day well, of course, as a teacher and someone who cares profoundly about education and someone who cares profoundly about you, I hope that if that opportunity arises, as I imagine it might, when yeah. the time is right. If you know any of any openings, anyone, <laughs> <laughs> give me a holler. Yeah. So I have a real on-the-nose question. Yeah. You know me well enough, Ben Kim, that you know that you're going to have to countenance some on-the-nose questions in our conversation today. So here is what I imagine to be but one on-the-nose question. You could do almost anything on the piano. Well. I mean, with practice and training, you have everything it takes. What is it about classical music in particular that keeps you coming back for more? That's a good question. I mean, I think <laughs> it's funny because for me, classical music is this kind of umbrella term for all kinds of music, right? There's the classical era in classical music, you know, which is the 18th century. Composers like Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, you know, it goes back to, you know, Western classical music goes back to Bach and also a little before that, uh, the centuries leading up to that. For me, there's there are there's just a universe of music from, you know, Bach until today. It's kind of like saying, "What about art?" 
drove you to art you know uh, so 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 and 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 i'm very some somehow i sometimes feel like i'm actually really narrow-minded because then all the other music is just one kind of music you know like there's this universe <laughs> of classical music and right. then there's just like like i kind of sometimes like slump everything else into one category right, right. so 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 i don't really even kind of see it like okay. like like i mean i think that it's 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 a totally fair question but i it's hard for me to give you a fair answer because because uh, what isn't there that would bring me to classical music? I think I think generally music serves many purposes for different people. You know, it gives you a kind of, I mean, on a very general level, it probably it gives you a certain access to something that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. You know, words are always kind of an approximation of our expression, and music often feels closer to that expression and so i think that's why people in general all over the world are drawn to music and i think similarly with classical music i just find that like there's no bottom to that exploration for me you know i can spend a life learning and discovering new things from a single piece by beethoven and it will just continue feeding me. It'll continue nourishing me. And it, I'll continue. I mean, I th- would imagine it's something even like reading a great novel or or maybe Shakespeare or something. You know, like it can touch you in a certain way when you're 10, the way this these Chopin pieces did. And it'll then touch you in another way when you're 20, 30, 40, 50. Kind of like when you come back to the same book and read it again when you're an old man. A great book will then mean something totally different to you. And I think that, you know, like sometimes like people will ask me, wouldn't you find more satisfaction if you like compose something or if maybe if you improvise, because then you can like do something off the cuff, which I think is totally an art in its own form, of course, but... I'll admit it, the thoughts crossed my mind. I think that people are drawn more not to, you know, something new someone created. I mean, they are, of course. If there's a twist in a story you didn't expect... It's unexpected and it makes you excited. But I think people come back to things like fairy tales, you know, these these stories that we already know the beginning, middle, and end to, because it's not about the act of creating something new, then it is about experiencing something that we like we know the end of Snow White or this the end of Cinderella or whatever, you know. But they did this 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 amazing um, study on what creates goosebumps or shivers across like, you know, the 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 the, the sensation that the the hair on the back of your neck is standing yeah, yeah, yeah. when they're listening to music in particular. And they found out that the vast majority of this moment when this happens comes from a point in a song or a piece of music that you're listening to that you expect to happen. You know, when you're anticipating something you already know is going to happen. Like a resolution. No, or even a climax. Like, you know that the juicy good part is coming. And uh-huh. as it's approaching, the hairs on the back of your neck begin to stand because it's so awesome. You know, it's not because... I mean, it's sometimes from experiencing something you've never experienced before, but that's far more rare. It more often happens from something you already have experienced before and know. So there are certain composers who leave many of us with the hairs on the back of our necks collectively standing up. And you've mentioned a few of them, you know, Bach and Brahms. Beethoven, Chopin. I'm deeply curious as to how 
and why you choose particular compositions to practice and to perform. What are the variables that you bear in mind when choosing what's next for you as a performer? You mean in terms of like the repertory or, you know, the kind of pieces I want to play? Yeah. I mean, there are a number of factors, you know, involved when you are, like I said before, <laughs> getting paid to play dead people's music. Yeah. Um, sometimes just some people want you to play this piece of music and then you agree to it. Uh, it, it also depends on the venue. It depends on what kind of concert it is. If it's a recital, you know, where you're playing solo for 90 minutes, or if there's a part of a series where you're playing a concerto and it's kind of already, they already know that, you know, they already had Schumann last year and they want, it's like the centennial of Grieg or something. And, and they want, they want a Grieg piece, you know, a Grieg concerto or something, you know, so sometimes it's fixed like that. And then they ask you if that's a part of your repertory for that season. Other times they'll say, is there something you have in mind? And then let's see if that fits with our, you know, let's see if that's been played recently. And if it's not, then, you know, we can try to fit with, you know, what you have available for you. So often I would say like, you know, a, a good proportion of what I play comes from what it is I want to play. And then if I'm asked to play something I don't want to play, then often I will just say, well, can I play something else? And then they say yes or no, or, you know, depending on many factors, um, I say, well, that sounds interesting. I could try to learn it. And then I, uh, I might play the music they ask for. There are certain composers I just gravitate towards more and less toward, towards others. Who are those? Mozart, Schumann, Chopin, Debussy. Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, this generally German, Austrian, German speaking uh, music that I have kind of like a first affinity for. I mean, I love also playing, you know, Russian music like Scriabin and Rachmaninoff, but somehow what I keep coming back to, and also over the years, I really love to re-explore and come back to as well, is a lot of, a lot of German music. I'd say. Um, and the reason why I think that there is a certain kind of metaphysical aspect to the music that, you know, I would not say French and Russian music lack that at all, but somehow it's kind of a, it's kind of an identifier of not only music, but German music, but also German literature. You know, it, it has kind of this, you know, looking not only inward, but also kind of at the universe um, aspect. Um, and I think that that it's kind of a breeding ground for searching, finding, discovering over and over kind of, it's hard to tire of even depending on which point you are in your own life, it will mean something different to you. So I think that a lifetime couldn't cover all the great piano literature that's been written um, over the last you know, four or five centuries or keyboard literature. And so because it's so rich, there's so much to choose from. And I start with what I like. And then from a more practical point of view, concert presenters will, depending on the year it is, it might be, you know, the centennial of a certain composer, or maybe they, you know, want to feature, you know, a composer, or they already had so-and-so last year, so they don't want to have them this year or the next. So they, they'll make certain requests. Um, for certain pieces, and then you kind of see if that fits with what you'd like to do. Um, sometimes, 
I agree, you know, sometimes I'll just agree to do it because it'll pay me good money, you know, yeah. but yeah. usually, usually I try to, you know, I've also regretted that, you know, to say yes to something that I, you know, well, I'm like, oh, why am I doing this? I have it's to like live torture. With I, I have to live with Rahmanov for the next three months of my life in preparing for this gig. Well, it would never be with Rahmanov, but let's say, um, I don't know. I was going to ask you anyway. Go ahead, tell me. What, who's, <laughs> what's the nightmare invitation? A nightmare invitation would, first of all, it wouldn't be three months. It would be like months and months and months of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And then it would be... I don't want to be. I don't want go ahead. To trammel on someone's <laughs> grave, please. For me, come on, Ben Kim. <laughs> I mean, okay. So, like, I've been to. Sometimes I've played pieces where second half of the 20th century or new music that, in theory, is would be exciting to play, and some of it is amazing music. But of course, time hasn't also necessarily proven their. I don't know. Timelessness. Yeah, their timelessness exactly, and um, and sometimes that music is just not possible to play. So you have to play music that's questionable, that's impossible, <laughs> <laughs> and and then it's it's kind of like why am I why am I here right now? <laughs> so, and uh, and 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 sometimes it can be extremely rewarding, and other times I do feel a little bit like. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... Okay, without naming names, there's certain post-war composers who you would prefer not to have dalliances with. But there are great ones, like Pierre Boulez, for example. He's an amazing composer that you have to, you know, sweat over and, and have to, you know, bleed and cry over. So, I mean, uh, there's uh, you have to work so hard for that, but then, but then in the end, it can be extremely rewarding as well. Well, then give me the other side of that. What's the dream invitation? They say... Benjamin Kim, we really want you to come to play a concert or a concerto, and it would be lovely if you would play X. What's I mean, the ideal X? I mean, just to be invited to do anything is always an honor, of course. I mean, it, it's it's nice that someone thinks of you to play anything. I mean, if I would play a Mozart concerto or Brahms concerto or Beethoven concertos, um, and also cha also chamber music by the same composers, I mean, I think that I would have the most fun doing that myself, personally. So let's get super present. Before coming here today, you were practicing in a beautiful rehearsal space. What are you playing now and how do you feel about it? So right now I'm working on a number of projects. Um, like you said, I was, I was practicing at the Staatsoper today. It's a beautiful space there, closed for the season. I was probably not allowed to practice there, so it might have been illegal. <laughs> but someone got me in there, and I was practicing there, and it was it was very nice. But um, at the moment, I have a number of projects coming up. The one that I'm most excited about is I am recording the Mozart concertos. He wrote 27 of them. Each of them are about half an hour, so that's like 13 albums of music. That's quite ambitious. Well... <laughs> we have to realize them. So it is ambitious, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a 40-piece orchestra. You know, I went on a little tour with, um, uh, with the Concertgebouw Chamber Orchestra. There are 40 members from the, or 30-something members from the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam, which is, you know, I would say one of the best orchestras in the world. I had a great time working with them and proposed the idea of recording some Mozart with them, and they were 
open to the idea. So we actually recorded our first album, um, which was released yeah, a few weeks before the pandemic started. Um, and in the meanwhile, um, we have plans because, you know, we were kind of on pause for a while. We have plans now to, for the second, third and fourth albums that will be recorded kind of all at once. And so I am working on five Mozart concertos um, right oh now. Oh my gosh. So, and, and it's it going to be... daunting. I mean, it's, it can be, it's going to be like a, potentially like a 10 year project maybe. So, um, so I'm really excited about that. And the Mozart concerti, the, the whole output hasn't been recorded in their entirety for, for a while. So I think... Yeah, I like. I'm kind of excited that I can make uh, another version of it. I mean, there's so many that I love, and so many that are, uh, you know, favorites of mine. But to be able to kind of do it myself, that's really like, wow! I can't believe that I'm doing that. I didn't know that. Congratulations! That sounds really exciting. Thanks. I want to talk with you a bit about your practice as something of a, a tinkerer on the piano myself. Nothing serious, as you know, but as someone who loves the piano yeah. and as someone who grapples a bit with practice and practice rituals and the like, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a bit about what exactly it is that you do when you sit down at the piano. Well, I would, wouldn't say that I have any kind of real ritual about practicing a lot of my practice is about necessity. You know, having said that, I think that there are certain things I do that gets me, you know, in the zone and ready to kind of take on what it is I need to do, what I need to accomplish. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to just be inspired by music. You know, inspiration I often find is a little overrated. It's a little bit like taking Adderall. Like it feels great, but you don't get so much done in the end. Like to actually execute something and be like, how am I going to, how am I going to get this inspirational thing and then be able to translate that? Obviously it requires a lot of diligence and a lot of even just boring repetition. But at the same time, um, with that comes a certain freedom and clarity that is exhilarating. So I, I would say that, yeah, I have, like many musicians, a love-hate relationship to practicing, you know, or I don't know, that's just me, maybe. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, it's everyone. It, must, it, it <laughs> yeah. simply must be. Yeah, I, I imagine it's everyone. And, and I think that there are so many different ways I practice, you know, there's panic practicing when I have, you know, something that I need done in in an amount of time I don't have, you know, and then I have to be super efficient about getting as much done, even if it means 80%. Yes. Yeah. It's weird because I have a teacher, not Fleischer, but another really, you know, important teacher to me. She always talks about our six ears, you know, she calls them (laughs) the ears past, present and future. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's the sound we heard after we make the sound and the sound that we're hearing and the sound we anticipate. And they are constantly working with each other, these six ears of ours. And to be like conscious enough to be in touch with all of those ears, I think requires an incredible amount of concentration and not only concentration, but I find 
you know, like I can play and not be in touch with myself and the keyboard and feel like it sounds fine. But if I threw a kind of grueling, almost meditative, like repetition, you find that you can kind of distinguish these ears. I find that when you have access to that, getting there is like, that's like a whole process. And it can be so frustrating to not be aware of what you don't know. <laughs> um, and, and then to suddenly be aware of what you don't know, like to suddenly understand, oh, I'm hearing everything that is and isn't and then doing something about that and then to try to eventually become even unconscious about what it is you're doing. That process is, is one aspect of practicing. And I think that because it's so demanding, like you have to do things to try to get into that zone. Like you have to have armor and it's like going into battle every time you like sit down at the piano a bit. And I, well, yeah, can you, you unpack that a little bit, this, this metaphor of armor, like what does that mean exactly? Well, I think armor means in this case, tools, you know, like a tool belt, Mm -hmm. um, um, tool belt of gaining a certain amount of consciousness, you know, to have access to those ears, you know, whether it is, um, a body consciousness, you know, like, you know, how your feet are touching the ground and how you're connected to the earth and your core, um, you know, where your center of gravity is, your spine, your head, your forearms, your upper arm, like all of those kind of that the connection you have from your from mind to body, I think is one aspect. But then also to then connect that to your ears, to have your fingers be an extension of your of your ears is another aspect. And then I think probably the most fundamental, which is then connecting all of that to I guess, I mean, it's very cheesy, but to your heart, you know, to, to what, what it is you're trying to feel or, or, um, or say, I mean, I think something that's very basic, but a little mind blowing is that all of this music that was in a great composer was in their head before it was like translated onto paper, you know, like basically I'm trying to kind of work my way backwards into what the original intention was. And then through like a person that's me living in 2021, like some, you know, it's a combination of who I am and, and the knowledge and experience I have with a composer or a creator who made something great and trying to get to the bottom of something. And ultimately it's often about how it touches you, how it moves you and how it pierces you. So I think that, yeah, like kind of working your way backwards and then again forwards to the point yeah it's 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 a it's a huge thing to do i mean it's it's tiring i can understand like you said you everyone can relate to why they have a love-hate relationship to practicing because they want to like be good at something they want to have be able to be free i wholeheartedly agree and i think we do want to be free i think liberation is the source of the inspiration for all artists In order to get to that state of perfect freedom, we have to grapple with a couple of things that you brought up in that response. And I want to ask you about all three of them. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you for a favor. (laughs) Okay. I ask a lot. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You talked a bit about consciousness. You talked a bit about intention. And then you talked a bit about feeling. 
I want to ask about intention first. It seems to me that part of your art, as you just described it, is thoroughly understanding the intentions of the composer. You have to walk beside them, perhaps sometimes walk behind them. You need to be there on some level with Mozart. You also are a thoroughly modern person. And I wonder if you could walk me through how the composer's life and times and intentions inform your interpretation of a composition. Well, they inform everything. I mean, I think that culture is a result of experience and and to to know even something as simple as the backstory, but also just the time that they were in. Um, and, you know, everyone is is a member and even a victim of their time. So I think that like from what this music was created, I mean, I mean, art has always been subsidized by someone. It was never popular. You know, it was whether by the church or by the court or by the state to have that context then gives you an understanding of what it was for and what, you know, you know, Mozart was actually quite a naughty, like, 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 you know, like there's been movies about him. He's, you know, very unconventional and very radical and, and his was dirty minded and he, but he, you know, he had to make music for the court. I mean, he was commissioned by the king to make great music and he had to somehow convince them that opera should be in, in, in German rather than the standard Italian or whatever, you know, like, and, and so, so, so then to, to be able to understand where that comes from and where his predecessors come from. And, and I think that, you know, that was his means for expressing what was inside of him. And I think maybe there's two layers, like there's that context, but there's also then underneath it, like I think there were lots of other similar sounding Mozarts in Mozart's time that had music that sounded like kind of Mozarty, you know? Um, if we were to close our eyes, there was probably like, you know, hundreds of other composers that sounded a bit like Mozart, but what made Mozart Mozart? Why was his so exceptional why did his sound so divine why did his music sound like it was cutting through you know all of the stylistic like i said he was also a victim of his time so why was it cutting through that noise you have to kind of understand that to then get to the next layer if that makes any sense it makes perfect sense it also begs just a bit of a follow-up okay in your practicing in your rehearsing how much are you actively and consciously seeking to fulfill the intentions that, in this case, Mozart might have had for the music. Well, it's kind of a little bit one I want to expand on was that what's curious about it is that once you have an understanding of that context, you realize actually he is underneath trying to say something, something that's real. And that the realness of what he's trying to say is as modern as something I would feel now or someone felt 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It's so universal. That's where we can link up, you know, then, then I'm like, oh, this is why it's you know, fucking amazing or whatever it is, you know, like, yeah. I think that, uh, I think that it's just, um, you know, to get to the point requires you to have an understanding of all these layers of, and once you peel the layers out, then you get to the core of that. And I think that that's kind of, that's where, that's where the interesting part begins. Is Mozart in the room with you? Are you performing in a way 
for him? Are you seeking to honor his intention for the music when you're performing it? I mean, it's... I think it's a, a tricky question to answer because as classical musicians, it's so easy to put these people, these great people on these pedestals and to say, how dare you do it in any other way um, if not to meet what it is he intended. I mean, yeah, they might have, they might be offended by certain things you do with their music, but if you have an understanding that automatically shows, you know, kind of your respect for them, I don't think it's necessary to idolize them. I don't think it's necessary to say this is for the sake of Mozart as if he's like in the Bible or something. I just think that I have access to Mozart because he, underneath there is something that's very tangible and real to me that I can recognize and it gives me something, you know? And so I think that as long as I have that access, it doesn't kind of matter in the end, probably. I imagine you're right. I said that there were three things in the favor. Intention was number one. You also talked rather poetically about kind of the problem of consciousness in your rehearsing. Like it's about being fully aware of your feet on the ground, the position of your core. To elaborate, it probably has something to do with your breathing, the positioning of your fingers, but it's also where your mind is at. Mm -hmm. For you to do your work at the level at which you do it, which is to say at the highest levels, it seems to me that you need to somehow be simultaneously fully present and fully conscious and perhaps paradoxically, totally unconscious, which is to say, you know, in a flow state or in a certain zone. And perhaps I'm asking you this so that you can help me because I, like many, am seeking access to this flow state. So can you talk a bit about the role of consciousness in your work? Yeah, it's, I can try my best. I know, it's, it's, it's a, such a sideways and vexing question, but any insight you have for me will be I mean, duly appreciated. What I know is, like what we're not aware of is vast and unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, speak for yourself. I got all the answers. <laughs> we'll, talk after the, we'll, we'll talk after the podcast. <laughs> and so... To try to become conscious of something you're not aware of, I think requires a certain, you know, I don't really quite remember the four stages of learning something, but it basically is, you don't realize you don't know what the fuck you're doing. And then you realize you don't know what the fuck you're doing, right? And then once you realize it, you try to then be able to do it. But you can only do that once, only when you realize you can't. And then I think the last stage is probably the most kind of abstract and the most difficult, which is then to let it all go and be then unconscious of what it is you're doing, to have it just flow out of you. And each stage is really hard, I think, but practicing is about going through those four stages. It's about flapping my fingers around kind of helplessly 
to understand what it is I can't do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and then with that with that understanding, try to change that into something I can do in order to free myself from not needing to do anything and be able to do it, you know? And I think that process it's just grueling. It's sometimes really really boring too. And I think that as you do that, you just become aware of more and more and more and you become freer and freer. And I think that, I mean, at least for me, there's a practicing element, but there's also a performing element too. You know, you have to then be able to do exactly what it is you want to do under pressure on the first try. You don't get a second try, right? You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's it's really important not to give pressure so that people can flower and bloom and do their best, right? But you don't, you're not given that luxury. Like you are literally on stage. Like Also, like that's the reason why people watch the Olympics, like figure skating or whatever it is, and you see them mess up because they're under such an extreme amount of pressure. They're not given a second chance. And that's kind of like, on one hand in practicing, it's about becoming really as conscious as possible and then ultimately unconscious. But then also to be able to know how you can navigate that under an intense amount of pressure when you have a thousand or two thousand pairs of ears listening to you, even waiting for you to mess up. I think that, yeah, I would, I would say there's like the consciousness aspect of practicing and there's also like the insurance aspect of practicing, you know, to make sure that the muscle memory is there. You know, all the all the practical elements are there to be able to execute something. Can you talk about what it feels like when you're performing splendidly in the privacy of your home studio and no one is there and it's almost as though you're not there. Like when you're effectively unconscious, but you're performing at peak levels. What does that feel like? Honestly, I have to say, at least for me, it could be different for others. It doesn't happen so often. It's always a struggle. And then it's always trying to be okay with 90% or whatever it is. But when you, like you said, feel unconscious and free, in that moment, it's extremely empowering. I mean, it's almost like a drug, I think, I, I would imagine. I mean, I think that you do feel like the keyboard is an extension of your fingers, which is an extension of your heart or whatever. And I think that, you know, there's the experience of hearing the music, but also, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's different for each person. I would imagine it feels a little bit like I'm not really a churchgoer. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm unspiritual, but I would, I see people who have access to even God and to be able to just, you know, or, or whether it's through meditation, just to have like at this inward access and to be able to feel like you can actually express that outwardly, I think is, um, yeah, it's 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 different. It's different from when you are just reading music, reading great music, 
not not well necessarily just you're reading it and you're you you think wow this is amazing music but when you have the kind of control and ability at a certain level like you said where you can just be unconscious about it then and it's really kind of like coming from you then i i do think that it gives you a very special access to yeah like another plane really something almost divine yeah definitely well i said that there were three follow up questions i had as you recall, the first was about intention, and the second turned out to be about consciousness. And the third is about something that means a lot to both of us, and you've already alluded to it, which is feeling. While it's clear that the music that you play is highly technical, and since you love these German composers, so perhaps especially technical, the music you play is also a sense and a feeling. And I'm almost desperately curious to know how you balance the technical and sensory dimensions of your pursuit. I'm not 100% sure about technical versus sensory a lot of times people in our field like to talk about technical versus musical, which is, I find to be a little bit of a contradiction because for me, everything is to some degree technical. You know, um, if I want to express sadness or joy, I'm going to do that by feeling it. And then that's going to somehow translate out of the music but there's a lot of steps in between there, a lot of technical steps, you know, the attack of the key on the keyboard. If it's attacked fast or slow, it's going to give a different expression. If it's loud or soft, if it's uh, connected or disconnected, those are all technical aspects that's going to lead to me feeling joy or sadness. And I think that people have different ways going about it. Some people argue if you break it down, it's no longer going to be natural. And other people say you should break it down as much as possible so that you can be aware of everything you're doing. Right, right, right. And I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer. I think it really is also depending on who the person is. Everyone is built differently and have different, you know. But for you. Um, and for me, I think, well, yeah, it's a... I, I think it's a it's a combination i think a lot of my early training was built on intuition um was built on how i feel and just do it um i think it only gets you so far i think you can get away with quite a lot if you have a lot going for you but at the same time um it doesn't give you that high level awareness you know you you don't want to use a mirror but at some point you want to hold that mirror up and see exactly what it is you're doing so that you can have an understanding of how it is you've got to express what it is you're trying to express. Ben, my friend, we're not going to hold up a mirror to you today, but I did tell you that I was going to ask you for a small favor. So we have been hitherto talking about your practicing and how you prepare. I do want to talk about your performing on stage and that's very important to me but before we do our listeners don't know that you and i happen to be sitting 
next to a beautiful grand piano in the piano room of my friends Lori and Ron, the proud parents of Momo and Josephina Claire. It's very beautiful. It is a beautiful... I don't know if it's any good. (laughs) (laughs) But only because I haven't heard it yet. (laughs) Well, I think we might want to take it for a joyride. Would you be so kind as to give us some insight into how you're practicing one of the pieces that you're currently working on by showing us how you're working on it? Sure. This week I've been working a bit on a piece by, by Chopin. It's the third ballade. He wrote four. It's kind of a form that he kind of, I don't know if he created it himself, if he coined the ballad, but, but he definitely popularized it at the time. And I've been working on this piece. It's, a, it's an interesting work because I mean, you know, many composers have different kind of philosophies about the purpose and you know of music that they're writing, and some of them, people like Brahms and Beethoven, they didn't. There was no backstory. The music should speak for itself. It's not programmatic music. And other other composers, great composers like Liszt, they had music that had a backstory, like a this is the part when this happens. This is the part when she dies. This is the part when he falls in love. And this is the part where everything goes great. Some composers were really for that and others were were not interested by that and wanted the music to have its own story that was not um, through actual words. And so the ballads don't really have any story, but on the back of one of his students, one of his pupils' pages of this piece that he composed that I was teaching, he had uh, the story of Undine, which is about a nymph who seduces a man, makes him fall in love with her, and she eventually convinces him to join her into the water, and she drowns and kills him. And I think it's a kind of badass story because what better than for a woman to be able to do that? Man. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but also when you know the story and you hear the piece, you hear her using her charm, beauty and wit to seduce him, to pull him kind of into her world. And you hear the water bubbling and him kind of totally taken in and she keeps telling her story over and over and each time he she woos him in more and more and and as the piece kind of ensues it it gets darker and it goes to the lower register and eventually you know it becomes inevitable that she kind of pulls him in and then she's kind of laughing all the way because she's she gets what she wants and it's it actually without that context you just hear that the music is triumphant at the end, but it's triumphant because she kills him. What's so cool about this piece... Other than homicide? <laughs> <laughs> no, that is, that is the thing that's cool about this piece. But what else is cool is that this song that she has, he has it in different forms, but principally three times it comes out. Her The first time, it's like very charming. It's It lilts, you know, and, you know, it gets a little sad because, you know, she's trying to... I imagine she's trying to explain, you know, her sad story to gain his sympathy. And what Chopin really curiously employs is in these three times, it's almost like techno music, you know, like he'll add like specific elements 
to each time that will build to the, I mean, there's sections in between each time as well, uh, but it keeps coming back her song and it'll be a little bit transformed. And that happens through the pedal markings, through the key. Um, and like you kind of hear in the beginning, she's trying to woo him, but by the third time they're kind of dancing together. And so, so, and I think that that buildup is really cool. And I think it's something that, you know, when you're practicing first, it's about exploring that. And then secondly, it's about how to execute it. And then thirdly, it's about, like I said, then how can I do it under pressure? You know, how can I guarantee it'll go well? But I can kind of walk you a little bit through through that. Let's do it. Okay.
Yes, from my snap chat. So this is kind of the, the main theme that keeps coming back. Um, like I said, it, was, it comes back roughly three times. I mean, it comes back in other iterations. And you'll hear the first time there's like a lilt to it because the pedal, which is the foot that keeps the dampers up and makes the sound sustained for longer, the pedal is kind of irregular. It's very asymmetrically written so that it's not lilting like in a predictive way. There's kind of, there's a funny lilt to it. and. It makes it a little flirty, maybe, something like that. And her sad story. That's kind of the story and you kind of feel kind of this this quality and then when it comes back the second time there's a second voice that joins in the left hand but only after the first few seconds of her playing and I presume that's maybe the guy who kind of kind of hesitantly joins her and I don't know if you'll be able to hear it but it's that's what joins this melody on top and also the pedaling is different so that the notes are sustained a slight bit longer and not as lilting as before.
then she starts flying in the water again. And then, and, and I don't know if you've heard that, but then when it comes back the third time, there's a lot more pedal, actually. It's a lot more sustained, and it's a different key. And he and she, they're kind of joined together, and they're, he's almost like, yeah, this is, I've got this, you know, kind of feeling. So, so, so that it goes something like this, the key changes. Suddenly, and then it just it starts building up and building up, and then you can hear it kind of developing that it's actually going horribly wrong, and then ultimately she takes him down and uh and <laughs> and uh, and what's awesome about it is that you see kind of in the indication like chopin's markings actually how he develops that and so what i have to do is basically first realize that they're there because they're really easy to oversee and then try to figure out how can i you know do i want a fast attack it's a little aggressive or do i want a very kind of slithering kind of quality like and those are kind of decisions I have to make. And once I make those decisions on like how I want to approach that, then I have to do it enough times that I can reliably do it, you know. And that process sounds, yeah, it can be a little boring, as I said before. But actually what happens eventually is that it gives me like this power. It gives me the ability to say exactly what it, I think she's saying and what he's saying and for it to come together. And yeah, that was just kind of a just a little example in in, in the little world I, I make for myself when I'm when I'm practicing. Ben Kim, it is indeed a splendid example, and I am super grateful that you're willing to sit down at the piano and share some of yourself with us. Thank you so much. I'd like to propose that we take a little bit of a break. I'd also like to propose that we crack open a bottle of wine and come back and then talk a bit about the performance side as opposed to the practice side of your work. Sound good to you? I like the wine part. (laughs) I had him at wine. (laughs) All right, let's do that. All right, we are back, and we have a bottle of Italian white courtesy of patrons of the podcast, Lori and Ron Hofer, and their splendid kids, Josephina Claire and Professor Momo. I'm staying at their house. I'm drinking their wine. (laughs) And uh, thanks. Thanks, everyone. All right. Here we go. We promise it's wine. (laughs) and ben kim a drop a heavy drop we wouldn't wanna we wouldn't wanna overdo it Prost. Mm, that's what this day needed oh everything's much better now (laughs) (laughs) 
this does, of course, beg the question as to why we didn't open a bottle of wine just to get this thing started. I mean, if only. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have a totally different conversation right now. <laughs> you want to start over? Okay, let, let's go back. So you've been very generous with us about sharing some of your reflections on the practice dimensions of your work. And as I was watching you in front of the piano... And by generous, you mean long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a little Apologies. bit. Uh, but generous nonetheless, in spirit. <laughs> and I was reminded in seeing you in front of the piano, if I could be frank about it, how engrossing it is to watch you perform, even to watch you practice. There's a physicality that you bring to your performances on the piano. I'll link to some of your performances in the show notes of this podcast. And our listeners, I am 100% certain, will be as captivated by you as a performer as I am as many an audience is. And I know it's not easy to take that particular compliment coming from me, but I mean it wholeheartedly I'll, I'll and sincerely. <laughs> it, that we can get. I'm hoping you can talk to me a bit about what it feels like to be on stage alone in front of a nine-foot beautiful Steinway piano on a stage at some august hall, whether it's Carnegie Hall or the Philharmonie, you've played them all. Indeed, I have a couple of questions. Let's start here. Mm -hmm. What do you do physically, mentally, perhaps spiritually, before you walk out on stage? Well, I mean, you just do what you can. You know, you're given certain tools I mean, the best tool being just experience, but basically you've worked tirelessly, hopefully tirelessly on everything. And it's the moment, actually, like we were talking about this last stage of learning, you know, to become unconscious of everything you've become conscious of, you know, to finally let go. And I think doing that is... It's, it's weird because part of it is just praying that nothing will go wrong. And part of it is knowing and being secure that everything is just going to happen. Honestly, when you're under pressure, your heart's beating faster. You know, even if you've done it many times on different stages, you're, you're still, you still get nervous. It's, it's kind of like the last thing, right? And it's, it's really like a meal. Like you, people listen to you and then the content's over. It's, you consume something and it's over. And so you do what you can to be in the moment. I think that there are, you know, there are rituals that people, you know, do to kind of get in the zone. Do you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think Can you that talk to me about those? A long time ago, I used to carry around a little rock and I would eat a banana or something. And um, I don't know, I used to do little things like that, but I don't really do those things anymore. And... Um, I think it's more just mentally trying to be quiet. How do you do that? I I think it's a little bit like meditation. Uh, you just try to get centered, and and then once you're on stage, you just you just kind of go for it. I think, and at that point, there's nothing more you can do that'll change the outcome. So you just have to kind of 
like accept that and then just kind of go for it. Um, I think that it's extremely thrilling, especially when you're when you're prepared and you feel like you've done everything you can, you know, and then there's a, there's like a response that you have that you feel live, like from moment to moment when you're on stage, even if you don't see the people's faces, it's not you just playing out there and there's no feedback. You, you, there is a feedback. There was a mathematician from Harvard I talked to once who kind of tried to make a theory on, on this feedback. Why when you're at a concert, a live concert, why sometimes you might be just enjoying it and it's nice and that's it. And why other times there is such an electricity in the air. There is such a, a presence that everyone collectively feels together that they're, that they're all experiencing collectively. And, and it's like almost like, you know, painting a line that everyone can see an invisible line that everyone can see and everyone's there with you. And that moment can be extremely um, electrifying for both the performer and the listener. And his theory was that when you play in a, a big hall and it's empty, it doesn't have people in it. There's actually much more reverb than there ever should be. It's, it's you're, you're swimming in sound in a good hall because for every person that fills up the hall, each person is like a sponge of sound. They, they actually absorb sound into their body. Um, the same way, if you're in an empty room, it echoes, but if you fill it up with furniture and carpets, then it becomes dry. Um, so f for every person that comes and sits down, they absorb a little bit of the sound you create. And the best halls will be designed for uh, when the house is full, that the sound is at its most optimum. And his theory was that people themselves, um, he did this test with different people where he'd kind of embrace them and then kind of yell or sing really as loud as possible and then see like how much of it vibrates through each other's bodies um, and through different amounts of tension. So like if they're relaxed, like if ho holding each other, like holding each other's arms, yelling or singing um, in a relaxed state or in a tense state, the sound is absorbed differently. And he said that if there are, say, a thousand people in a room and everyone is collectively absorbing, receiving, enjoying what they're hearing, then their body is in such a state that it's something that can, you know, with one person in the room, you might not be able to feel it, but with everyone in the room, you know, if everyone is tense together, then the sound will be absorbed in a different way than if everyone is alert or, or relaxed or, or whatever. And, and so, and so he said that like, he, he thinks that it's, it's this collective, like, you know, there, there are panels you get in a, in a, in a recording studio that'll absorb sound, but each person, when each person is a panel himself or herself, depending on how they're receiving the music, they'll absorb it differently. And that's what creates this electricity in a room that can't be reproduced on a microphone. Um, and so that's kind of like when you're on stage, you're kind of gauging and checking, you know, you try something. And like you said, when you're prepared, you feel free to do anything. Um, you, 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 you kind of check the same way, say like a comedian says something and see if it bounces off or not. See if it, 
bombs or if it's if it kills you know like it, it you, you kind of do the same thing on on stage and and with that feedback you're trying to create an experience for everyone to enjoy and that can be like it can be extremely exciting so the comedian knows that they have succeeded when the audience laughs yeah that's the only metric of yeah. success that the comedian has your metric for success is different now for you your audience as i've experienced classical concert audiences they're 20 years older than me most of them <laughs> and i'm not a young man anymore can they distinguish between you at your best doing a 10 out of 10 performance or you not at your best doing a 7 out of 10 performance it would depend that answer would depend because uh, if we were to continue on this comedian analogy, that is a measure of how successful a comedian might be at their show. But there are comedians who will use cheap jokes to get their laughs. And there are comedians who will really use their creative power to have a laugh that's deserved. And I think that the audience member, it's going to, like, some of them are going to be able to distinguish that, not all of them. Probably the ones that go to a lot of comedy shows and kind of know the rhythm of a comedy show, we'll know which which of those laughs were were those laughs that that meant something, yeah, and those yeah. that didn't. And I think it's similar with classical music. I think that generally, I I I think it's really like an error to underestimate people because I think they know a lot more than uh, we assume them to know. But also that. Of course, if you go to one concert every few years, it's going to be harder to gauge. And of course, like it's finer because there aren't people laughing. Um, but if you go to many concerts, for example, if you go to multiple concerts, you'll suddenly realize, oh, one out of 10 concerts, nine out of 10 will be nice. And maybe one out of 10, there will be something special about that. Some moment that was like, whoa, that was different. And yes. there was something that captivated everybody. And I think that is kind of like what we're trying to achieve. And even though that might not be expressed in actual laughter, a musician on stage definitely feels that feedback. When you feel like everyone is on board with you, I went to, or, or not, I went to a concert in Carnegie um, a couple of years ago with Matthias Gerner and Christoph Eschenbach. He's a, sing a baritone singer and a pianist that uh, did Schubert Winterreise, which is a song cycle, a very, very sad song cycle by Schubert. And, um, um, and it was amazing. At the, by the end, it's like an hour-long song, essentially a set of songs that's just sung from beginning to end without, without break or applause. And at the end of it, people couldn't, applaud it was it was almost impossible to like they were so stuck in the moment that they had created that it was like like everyone couldn't even dare breathe and i think that um i think that uh something like that doesn't happen very often uh, but when it does it it is recognized by people so listen it's crazy that you should frame it that way because I have literally said exactly that about a performance, and it was maybe a 15-minute performance that you had at an annual benefit concert that I host at my school. You, bless your heart, have been kind enough to support my students and I when the timing is right. And for 
several years, you would come to the school and you'd perform at this, these, these annual benefit concerts. And in describing one of your performances, I don't know if it was 2013 or 14, I forget, I said exactly that. You stopped playing and nobody moved. And every time I tell the story, my interlocutor says, oh, the, the, the kids didn't know that, that it was over? I'm like, no. It was kids. It was adults. It was the music teachers at the school. The way I describe it is that we just couldn't fathom that this could be ending. We just so desperately didn't want it to end or that we were so in the moment that we couldn't bring ourselves to applaud. And Ben Cam, I cried that night, but it wasn't the first time. Your approach to performance warrants some discussion. And look, like any decent, humble friend of mine, you're going to be recalcitrant at any compliments I give you. I get it. <laughs> but... <laughs> But you are a sight to behold on stage. I don't know how much of it is conscious, though. I had actually a, a former student, now kind of a friend of mine. She lives right across the street over here sometimes. You shared a stage with her at one of these benefit concerts. Her name is Sophia, and she was sitting with me a couple of days ago. I told you you were coming over, and her eyes lit up. And I said, oh, then what do you think I should ask him? Because I don't normally interview classical performers. And she bounced around a couple of questions, one of which stuck with me. So this is a question from a former student and a current listener to this podcast. Her name is Sophia Schnauk, and she's kind of the best. And I think she was saying this maybe in reference to Yu Zhao Wang, who's this pianist who she really admires. Sophia Schnauk wants to know, and I will say that I want to know, what's on your mind when you're performing in the concert hall? What's going through your head when you're there and you're doing it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it really depends on the concert, but also it depends on my level of preparedness. It depends on how much I feel in control uh, or not. Uh, it depends on the audience that's there. You know, like you kind of have to feel it out a bit. Sometimes, I mean, there are some moments when you feel like they're less engaged than you had hoped, and then you have to do something that'll get their attention a little bit, you know? What do you do? You know, you'll kind of over-exaggerate, you know, some of the features of the piece, you know, to make it a little more dramatic than it necessarily needs to be. You know, depending on really, like, if you're in a big city or a small city, you know, like, I think that there are so many different kind of variables that kind of, conscious or not, that kind of dictate, like, how you're going to behave. It's hard to kind of pinpoint how it is or what it is I feel. Often you kind of don't even, like, your sense of time is, like, lost a little bit. So, like, even though 45 minutes went by, some parts that should be a few seconds long seem endless and and uh, and some other parts that are you know so elaborate you know you've worked so hard at it that it just flies through in a matter of what feels like seconds to you and i think that um 
Um, sometimes you feel uh, you're just saying Hail Marys and just hoping for the best. And other times you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're like, I got this. I, th I think that it's, it's a like the honest answer is it's kind of everything. I mean, I imagine if you were to practice a speech you had memorized in front of the mirror a hundred times or a thousand times, and then finally you're in front of an audience You don't know what to expect, really. And then there's a spotlight on you, so you don't really see the people's faces. And then you have to talk like they're just a friend standing next to you. And it has to feel very natural. But at the same time, it feels completely unnatural. And you know your speech and you've memorized everything. And you know every inflection. And you know like all the all the things you want to do and say and yes, yes. and but but then at the same time you kind of you're just there and then it's like ah i don't know like uh, you and and it's 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 interesting because i think it also depends on how many times you get to do it like do you get to say this speech like 10 times or 20 times or is it just the one time you know and then it's over and i think that if you have the chance to do it 10 times then it's going to change because then you the fifth time will feel very different from the first time. So, uh, uh, but then maybe the audience is like not interested the fifth time around. And then even though you feel like you got this, that nobody is actually, um, listening to you. So, I mean, I, I think it's kind of hard to, there's no one like set answer to that question. I think it's, it's basically you take all the tools you have and then, You try to let it all go, and then you kind of just go for it and see what sticks. Yeah, and I don't want to give you the impression that I was seeking a singular answer from a narrow question. I have the sense from your response, though, that you're very attuned to how your audience is perceiving what you're doing while you're doing it. That's an interesting comment you say, because I think that a lot of musicians, a lot of performers actually have different approaches you right. know some people will do it for themselves they won't give two shits about anybody in the audience they'll just say this is for me and i don't care what you think that's the illusion that bob dylan always operated on but it's yeah. the illusion he never it was it was part of the character but go ahead i mean that's a great example and 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 for others it's literally about feeling the audience you know it's yes. about it's about this interplay between you know what it is you've prepared and how it's going to play out in real time you know and that's the thrill for them and pianists musicians performers on stage i think there is a spectrum of people so there are people i'm asking about you though i'm trying to pin you down now yeah and i think that i definitely i mean i think i mean my i have a teacher who said you know somebody can tell you everything about themselves and describe everything that they are and they aren't but They walk out of stage, they play, and it's like you see them naked. You see them for who they are. And it's kind of like, I think that's very much so for, for any performer. Um, I am the kind of person probably that not, not only seeks a certain kind of validation, but like just, you know, you're like feeling people out and seeing who responds to what. So I am the kind of person that will change a little depending on, you know, and, and, and there, is a, there is a little uh, give and take there that I, that I think is at least important for me i think that it's not necessarily the the way one should go about doing something but I, i i think that that's just probably a part of who i am so i don't know if that answers your question but yeah it answers my question but it begs another question there's a physicality to what you do a physicality yes and again i'll link to some of your performances in the show notes 
your face, your shoulders, you drive the machine in such a way. I don't have a whole lot of comparative perspective. I don't go to a lot of classical piano concerts. But when I watch you, and maybe it's just my bias as someone who's known you for mm -hmm. over a decade. Very well, could be. I find your facial expressions and your physical gestures to be so engrossing. Can you talk to me about the physicality of what you're doing? It's not just your fingers, of course. You're fully engaged head to toe. You must burn 10,000 calories in a 40-minute performance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had a, there was a, a pianist I know who, um, who eventually became a conductor, and he said it's management when you conduct, of course, and there's, it's, a, it's a whole art in itself. But he said when he played piano recitals, it was like a little piece of him died every time he played a piano recital because that was the amount of energy that was required for you to like give. And, um, and I think that there is a certain, yeah, there is a certain element in that. Um, and I think you, there is nothing you can do other than give everything you've got. I certainly don't think about any of the expressions I make on my face. Uh, some people might even argue that, that if it's actually not coming out of my fingers, that it's just some leakage, you know, like the, uh, like, like all of the focus is not going toward, you know, if I was in a conservatory setting with a professor, they might argue that, that actually that energy that I'm expending from my face is actually not being translated through my fingers. So they could actually say the opposite of what you say, but, but in any case, I think I am trying to be fully me it is an effort that I'm trying to give everything I have, whatever power I might have, whether it's something, you know, whether I might be lacking something or not, whether I might be prepared or not in that moment, I'm like, I need to do everything I can to make this work. And I think that that is probably a byproduct, like what you see, you know, this physicality is a byproduct of my effort in trying to give everything prob probably. Yeah. It seems to me like, you leave it all on the stage the way that like Michael Jordan used to leave it all out on the court. I really <laughs> believe this about you. Like you, you seem to me to be so deeply engaged in the music, but also in the effort to bring people into your world. And I think that's part of what it means to be a performer, right? You're an artist, but you're a performing artist. Right, you, you perform this music and I think that part of your approach to performance and I think you come by it very naturally. I don't think this is an act in any way, shape, mm. or form. I think you really want your audience to experience the music, perhaps the divinity of the music or the, the glory of the music the way you do. I mean, whether divinity or glory or whatnot, I definitely think that, I mean, the reason why I play something is probably because I like it and I want to convince, I want to compel someone. I want to say, how can I invite you to experience what it is I'm experiencing? I so want to be able to have you go through what it is I'm going through 
join me, you know, kind of thing. So uh, I, th- I, I, yeah, I think that there is that element to that. That's what it is. That I think you really hit the nail on the head with the word invitation. I think consciously or otherwise, you offer a very cordial invitation to your audience. And, 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 and man, I'm grateful for it. I think, you, I think you bring people into the fray. And I think that's on some level what the best performers do. They offer not an easy invitation, right? Like maybe it's a skeptical invitation. Um, maybe it's an ambiguous invitation, but it's like a very genuine invitation. And I think that people need that invitation into classical music because there's a lot of like cultural weight that gets thrown around <laughs> vis-a-vis classical performance. I mean, there's a lot of baggage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of, you know, like it's a little bit like wine. Like people are like, oh, I don't know how to, like it's not for me or it's something that I'm not allowed to enjoy. Right, you know? right. And I'm hoping I could get you to talk about that a bit, and it seems like you're game to do so. I think in part because of this cultural baggage, there's a lot of disinformation and misperception around the entire classical music world. And maybe I have kind of like a two-part question. Like, what do people get all wrong about classical performance? And what do you wish people knew about classical performance to set it straight for them. I mean, like you said, classical music carries its history. It carries a lot of baggage. And, you know, a lot of performances today, I mean, there is a glass wall between the stage and the, and the, and the audience. And it is a little bit like seeing a museum piece. Um, and it does feel a little bit like you might not be a person who should belong there you know and i think that because it's been supported by patrons who are generous and wealthy enough to be able to support it i think that it does continue to carry a certain you know i hate to say it but a certain kind of elitism that people definitely feel when they go to a classical music concert whether it's at the opera or at the philharmonic hall you know and i i think that it's a thick and hard wall to knock down and I think that you know at the same time it isn't pop music it isn't popular music I I don't think art in any kind of form was ever really historically popular so I think that people in our field always like to complain about how it's dying and the audience is getting older but they've said that for the last 60 years everyone was getting older for 60 years but it's still (laughs) the same you know and and I think that yes, as you get older, perhaps your tastes change and there's a truth to that. But I do think that so often people in classical music really underestimate their audience and, and, and they try to kind of lure people to our world by kind of dumbing it down, which I'm always bothered by that a bit. Um, I, I find that... To give you an example, something that a lot of orchestras and opera houses do these days, because they are losing their subscribers, you know, their 
they're, they're dying off, you know, and they need new subscribers. They don't want people to just come once. They want you to, you know, there's this old model where you'll buy eight or 10 concerts for the season, you know, and they need those people. Those are the people that stay and they want to get new subscribers. So often they will have outreach programs. Some are educational for children, which is great. There, there are orchestras and opera houses that will take a few of their members and put them in like a trendy bar or, you know, like, you know, like a rooftop terrace bar somewhere where normally it's a club or, or maybe a nightclub or something, put them in a different setting. And then, you know, on a Friday night and, you know, play some Piazzolla or some Vivaldi, something like kind of easy to listen to and have people drink a beer to it and enjoy their evening. And when I see that happen, I see people who are not musicians, don't know anything about music, classical music, who had a hard week, Monday to Friday, they want to go to a nice bar, turn their minds off with a beer. And they do that to some people from the orchestra playing Piazzolla, and it's nice. They find it, it's nice. But is that then going to have them go to the opera and go to the symphony? Um, is that going to make them curious about what it is that actually draws us to this music? Like, it just kind of, it's very surprising to me that when music, as we've been talking about for the last, I don't know how long, I've been talking about how much it turns my mind on, that we're trying to advertise this music to people who, kind of want to turn their minds off. And I think that I th I think that it's just yes. it, it's always seems a little bit perplexing to me that then we would assume or think or even complain that they're not there and that they're not able to like somehow we're like oh yeah they're dying off and they don't understand. Yet we're the ones who are just screwing ourselves over. And I think that whether it's Mozart or Schumann or, or, or Boulez, you know, I, uh, someone, I think that, I think that the, the music that I'm drawn to exists because it actually opens my mind. It opens my heart. I mean, there, there are just so many people who would pay good money to, to do that, you know, whether it's through mindfulness, through meditation, recreational drugs through like there are so many people who are seeking that actually that i think that classical music actually has been doing for centuries and uh, for me it's kind of like we should be kind of targeting those people right and showing them not stuff that we think they'd enjoy but stuff that we like ourselves and i think people are doing that i'm not trying to kind of put a blanket like just just to shit on everything but i i, I think that um generally like so much of what draws us to this music, it explores so much. And we want other people to like get a taste of that. Um, but then we kind of do it in a way that I think underestimates them because there are people who do feel like, oh, I don't belong here or, oh, this is not music that I know how to enjoy or this is, I don't know how to differentiate between this and this and this and it all, you know, and I, and I wish that there would be, um, what were your two questions? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I was onto something, but you give a well-tuned machine a singular glass of wine <laughs> and this is what happens. <laughs> You had two questions, and I, I felt like I was answering both of them, yet I don't remember either one. The questions were... 
<laughs> what do people get wrong about classical performance and what do you wish people knew about it? Well, yeah. So that's kind of the it. answer. Yeah, you I'm kind of answering both of them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I was, I think that they, they, they get wrong that it is elitist and exclusive. Yeah. And that it's music that can't understand and that it's music that's not accessible or that it's music, you know, when you hear Mozart from afar, it sounds kind of like all the same, like kind of like powdered wig music, you know? <laughs> but if you really hear, you know, if you hear Requiem or if you hear Don Giovanni or if you hear um, any Mozart piano concerto, I mean, it'll, it can, if you're there in that moment, it can blow your mind. And I think yes. that it will be... Um, Transformative. It. it Absolutely. And I think that that's what's going to make people be like, okay, I want to see more of that. I want to, I want to experience more of that. And I think that it's, it's interesting because people talk about like a dying audience and stuff, but I, like in my experience, there are a lot of older people who enjoy classical music, like 80 plus people. And then there's like the generation underneath it, like the baby boomers who kind of associate classical music with their parents and the war or I don't know what it is, but like they're or they're from a like cultural like you know sex rock and roll, and they don't want to associate with classical music, so they're actually super resistant to. Or I, in my general experience, not everyone, of course, but when I meet people who are like my age or younger, they're so open to like learning and finding out more about you know whether it's contemporary music or minimalistic music or or baroque music um but in any case i i find that they're a lot more open minded and kind of ripe for being willing you know i i would like to think that there's a lot of hope for classical music if we get it right if we get our shit together <laughs> yeah i'd like to think so too and i think the more ambassadors there are out there like you for classical music the better off the future is. I felt a, I felt like my voice became a little more heated. I'm sorry. I don't know why. No, it did. Well, I mean, I think your voice became a little bit heated because not only do you feel, I would say quite rightly, that classical music is fighting for its future. You know, part of it is a result of its own mismanagement. But there are other forces at work as well. You know, a lot of young, smart, well-educated Westerners are repudiating their own past. Classical music is associated with a Western tradition that's being fundamentally questioned. And the conservation of the Western intellectual tradition and the Western artistic tradition has become highly problematized. All during a time when Western domination of what it means to be civilized is very much under discussion. The Western world has, at least in its own eyes, had a certain hegemony over what it means to be civilized. And some of the most quote-unquote civilized people in contemporary Western cultures are repudiating the very notion of Western civilization. Not entirely without reason. And of course, in this whole context, Western domination of the globe is an eclipse. Other powers are rising. For better or for worse, I make no value judgment in this. In the meantime, you're out there 
working your butt off every day to preserve, to conserve, to promote. I mean, it's funny you say that because I'm actually the son of Korean immigrants brought up in America, you know, propagating Western <laughs> European art music. So anyways. Right, no. And there's something quite beautiful about that, I should say. And perhaps that is the saving grace. You know, like Yu Wong grew up in Beijing and, you know, maybe living in Philly or New York right now. But there is a global appreciation for Western classical music, which might be its saving grace. I love the idea of you as an ambassador for this tradition, not because it's a tradition, but because the music speaks for itself. I don't know if we've ever spoken about my feelings, not that that's the point of this podcast, but I don't know that you and I have ever spoken about my feelings about watching you perform. I have seen you perform in a number of different venues over the years, and I find it to be a totally transformative, life-affirming experience. I don't say that as a friend per se, although I'm proud to call you a friend, perhaps for that reason, but for a hundred other reasons also. I say it because that's true to my experience. And I know I'm not the only one. And so I think that your work, right? This is a podcast about working. In order for you to perform at the level at which you perform, the work that is required is literally unfathomable to me. Like, that's why I was angling to get you on this podcast. You know, it's not because I want some big name in classical piano. I, I, I know that there's better people to interview you than me. But the work that you do in order to deliver what you deliver to an audience is to me, as someone who kind of fetishizes work, an object of true beauty. And that should be enough, but it's not. Because before we pull this train into the station, I have to ask you, as I ask my other guests, for but one small thing. I'm hoping that you can share with me a cultural artifact that somehow substantially informs your work. This could be anything, Ben Kim. It could be a poem or a, a piece of music or a film or a meme, I don't care, that like speaks to what you do as a classical performer. Oh, you said a lot of nice things about me. Um, well, I fucking like you, Ben Kim. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate it very much. I think that, you know, a lot of it is not necessarily even a testament to, to me, as you kind of very nicely put it. It's also a testament to how great the music I play is. You know, I mean, there's many different factors involved. But but I think that um, to answer your question about a cultural artifact, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me a question like that is kind of more a memory than anything. Um, and it is kind of, you know, associated with Leon Fleischer, who I studied with for seven years, being 13, 14 years old and listening to his Brahms piano concertos. 
I would obsessively listen to them over and over again because they were so, um, they left such an impact on me. I really, it was as ev- far before I ever met or knew him. But now when you ask me under the context of, you know, the conservation or preservation of Western art music and kind of, you know, the collective impact that it has for better and worse, another example comes to my mind. It's a Chinese pianist who died also at the end of last year by the name of Fu Tsong. He was one of the first Asian pianists that left kind of a mark on Western classical music. His parents were intellectuals in pre-cultural revolution China who had been forced to commit suicide um, by the state and he had won a prize at the Chopin competition. Well, he was one of the first people to have kind of, he had somehow naturally come to Chopin and, and to Warsaw and to the Chopin competition there. And he somehow never really got the kind of career, I think. He deserved a lot of pianists in the inner world, inner circle of, of pianists, you know, kind of idolize him and, and know and respect him, kind of a pianist's pianist. But he, I studied with him in London a bit and also um, at this academy in Italy and he was such a zealot even even though he came from another world in in a time when there where it didn't exist in his world he was so connected to the to this music just proof as to how universal this language is and how much access he had to it despite his history and I would say that a cultural artifact maybe would be a recording by him. I loved his Chopin, but one I think of immediately is the last concerto of Mozart, um, number 27, K595, that he recorded a Mozart piano concerto. That's just so beautiful. It's also beautiful and poignant because it's Mozart's last and it's very mature and very touching and and that it comes from him i i i would i would say that's my cultural artifact all right ben kim i will link to leon fleischer's brahms piano concertos as well as food songs last mozart concerto but the poetry of it makes it such that i would be remiss if i didn't ask you is there a recording of yours that i can play for us on the way out oh. of this here podcast. Oh, well, um, I guess I'd love to share the most recent recording I made, which was released shortly before the pandemic began. The first set of Mozart concertos I did with the Concertgebouw Chamber Orchestra. Um, it's Mozart's Concerto Number 23, K488. Maybe the second movement. Yeah, it's one of the finest pieces by Mozart, I think, for piano. And I think it links nicely to Futsang and everything we've been talking about, like how people might perceive his music on the surface and what his music actually is. It kind of demonstrates that really well. So I think that um, I would be more than happy. I would love to be able to share that movement. Ben Kim, you know I'm crazy about you, right? As I, you. Yay us! We did it, Ben Kim. Thank you so much. It has been (laughs) such a joy. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, my friends. That was me in conversation with my friend, 
Ben Kim. I told you he's something special, and I delivered on that promise. I love Ben Kim, and I hope you loved our conversation. As always, you're invited to pop over to patreon.com slash for a living. Support this podcast if you have the means. If you don't have the means, but you still support the project, please share it with a friend. Pick an episode that resonates with you and just shoot it over to someone who you think would appreciate it. And as always, you're always welcome to reach out. All my contact information is in the show notes. I love, love, love hearing from listeners. And I love listening to Ben Kim play the piano. And so I got a little treat for you. To ice the cake of this special episode, here is Ben Kim playing Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23 in A Major, K488. Do yourself a favor. Engage with this performance wholeheartedly. And I'll look forward to checking in with you in two weeks' time, where I'll be exploring the working life of Berlin-based contemporary artist Hannah Doherty. Mm-hmm.